Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. This week, we're focused on markets in Asia, and it's my colleague over in Hong Kong, Neil Govia, who's in the host seat, with not one, but two guests, Ken Cezanne and Manish Sharma. Ken is head of Asian research and a portfolio manager at Southeastern Asset Management, and Manish is a CFA charter holder and co-portfolio manager at the same firm. They are both based in Singapore. Ken and Manish discuss the outlook across various Asia markets and the importance of consumer-led growth in the region. They also consider whether local equity markets are suffering from unjustified ebullience and highlight the opportunities they see for value investors. And now over to Neil. Please enjoy his conversation with Ken and Manish. Well, thank you, Ken, and thank you, Manish, for joining me today via the uh, wonders of Zoom. My first question, getting straight into it, is going to come to you, Ken. And uh, it's quite obvious that at the moment, um, equity markets and equity indices seem to be doing very well. Um, I don't know what I'm missing. I'm an accountant by nature, so I like my fundamentals. Here we are in the middle of a, a COVID situation. What's driving these valuations, especially in APAC, and maybe what am I missing? Hmm. Um, so I think, um, you know, with regards to Asia, I think in general, um, the Asian markets really aren't missing a lot. I mean, the markets that deserve to be up are up because they've handled COVID well um, and their economies are, are recovering. And the markets that are still down year to date, I guess are for the most part down because COVID is still affecting them badly, right? So, you know, if you look at China, um, their markets are up big this year today. Um, they've aggressively tackled COVID. They are kind of first to, to experience it. Um, February was, was terrible for them. But, uh, you know, in a month and a half, um, they've basically reopened their economy. They've had 4,000 deaths, which is a lot. But in the grand scheme of things, is, is, is nothing compared to, to the rest of the world. Um, and so while China's GDP was probably massively negative in the first quarter, they've bounced back pretty quickly. And, you know, um, so I think um, the markets in China are reflecting the fact that the Chinese, the Chinese economy and businesses have probably suffered the least and bounced back the best um, from, from COVID. I was just looking at some of these stats, you know, exports actually surprisingly were up in China in August, um, up 7%. Um, auto sales were up like double digits in July. So I think China is probably the only economy that I know that is actually doing a V-shaped recovery. Um, and so I think the markets are reflecting that. Now, some of these moves in China I think are extreme, you know, um, healthcare is probably up 50% on average. Uh, consumer staples are probably up similarly. So, you know, there, there may be a lot of exuberance, but in general, I, I, I think that, um, you know, the Chinese markets are up because they have suffered the least um, in this pandemic, right? Um, on the other hand, 
um, I think the countries in Asia which are suffering the most are probably down the most year to date in the capital markets, right? So the countries like uh, the Philippines, India, Indonesia, th th those are countries that have suffered the most dramatic lockdowns. And they've also suffered, you know, China was first in Feb, March. And, uh, you know, Philippines, India, Indonesia, those guys enter into this, the peak of the pandemic, uh, you know, basically ar around now, which is why, you know, they haven't recovered yet. Um, and that's why the capital markets are down because essentially these economies are, even today, uh, for the most part, locked down. And so, you know, that's where we are finding that investment opportunity today because, you know, in that chaos, there are world-class companies where, you know, we can, if we look a year forward, we're able to pick up companies that we know are gonna recover um, that are world-class franchises, right? And so, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the way we are looking at the world. Clearly there are, um, there are companies that are being mispriced either in the exuberance or in the chaos that's happening in certain markets. And within that, um, you know, we're able to find very interesting opportunities to, to, to pick up on um, basically franchises and businesses that in the past we couldn't because they were just too expensive or, or whatever. Ken, is, is there much exuberance in the, as I could say, the APAC market, as you've, as you've already said, there is, there's definitely some which have done better and some which have done worse. But is there much exuberance over here? Because one market, obviously not an APAC, you know, the US um, hasn't done necessarily that well, possibly, in how, how you measure sort of reaction to COVID. Uh, but if you look at some of their equity markets, wow, they're reaching all-time highs, maybe driven by tech stock. So I don't know if that's over-exuberance, but do we see the same sort of thing here? Or... Is there, coming back to my initial thing, is the market over here, are they more based on a fundamental look at the potential and the recovery from COVID? So, so clear, clearly there are, um, you know, there are companies and sectors, just like in, in, in developed markets in, in the US where, you know, um, you know, you certainly have that tech sector in Asia, which has been uh, driving a lot of the strength in the economy. Um, that, that's for sure, and, and that, is, that is common between kind of the Asian capital markets and, and the U.S. capital markets. Um, so, but in, um, in, in Asia, I think there is a higher correlation between companies who are doing well in terms of earnings, revenues, and cash flows versus the market capitalizations of these companies. And I think in, in that, it, from that perspective, their market price reflect fundamentals of these companies much closer than perhaps um, in, in, in other developed markets. And, and also, I, I think that in Asia, we have had a lot less fiscal stimulus from the governments, even though I, I enjoyed my 10,000 Hong Kong dollars. It's, that I got from the Hong Kong government re recently, but the the magnitude of that fiscal stimulus in Asia has been significantly smaller, I would say, than in developed markets. And the amount of, you know, 
quantitative easing, whatever you want to call it, has been smaller um, than in developed markets. Okay, well, well I, I'm not going to embarrass you and put you on the spot and ask whether you, uh, you spent your 10,000 bonus actually in Hong Kong. Uh, so we'll, we'll gloss over that one for a while. Uh, but Manish, if I can turn to you, um, less exuberance, but uh, if I'm a value investor, for example, um, is there value still to be had maybe regionally? And how would I go about a, a bottom-up approach perhaps or uh, approach to value investing regionally? Uh, sure. So just, just touching on what Ken was saying on your last question. So, I mean, clearly US, I mean, that market is hitting record highs, but um, I guess, I mean, it's, it's, it's been artificially inflated in the past, I guess, by a ton of buybacks that was happening, uh, funded by debt. Uh, there was a lot of, I mean, I guess there was a sugar high of tax cuts that happened in the US. And then lately we have had this huge unprecedented amount of uh, fiscal and monetary stimulus. So that that's driven the markets higher there. In case of Asia, um, it, it's, it's basically an earnings growth story, right? Uh, Basically, the good old earnings growth driven by fundamental bottom-up demand demand drivers. Uh, that that's what's driving the companies here. Um, so in Asia, I mean, this this is the fastest-growing market and in our view, the most dynamic region. It's long been considered factory of the world, heavily reliant on exports to developed markets, um, but that that couldn't be further from truth. Um, there's a lot of noise right now about this U.S.-China trade war. Um, but if you look, just look at the net exports, by that I mean exports minus imports, that net export contribution to China GDP growth, that's been minimal, minimal over the last few years. So it's all about domestic consumption in Asia and that consumption boom, that's being fueled by close to double digit kind of CAGR in income per capita over the last decade. And uh, this income growth, that's being driven by rise in private enterprises, uh, a rise of entrepreneurs, and not the state-owned companies of the past, right? So uh, like 50% of internet users, I believe they all live in Asia, and they provide this huge pool of growing, increasingly richer consumer base uh, for innovation in the tech sector, right? Uh, now, a lot of these world-class companies are with innovative business models, they are increasingly being created in Asia. I mean, to give you some examples, like Meituan Dianping. Uh, this is basically Uber Eats on steroids. Uh, they are delivering, what, 25 million meals a day, still growing at like 35% clip. They IPO'd less than two years ago. And it's already close to like 200 billion market cap company now. Uh, Reliance in India. <clears throat> uh, they launched their mobile network called Geo four years ago and basically kick-started the digital revolution in India. And they are already close to 400 million subscribers now in, in a matter of less than four years. And now you see likes of Google and Facebook all kind of lining up to throw billions of dollars at that geo platform. So all that to say, there's a lot of wealth creation that's happening in Asia uh, for investors to participate in. And you get to buy that at much cheaper valuation relative to other markets which have been artificially inflated by the stimulus I just talked about. Um, <clears throat> so there are a few unique things about Asia which make it pretty attractive to us today. Um, so for first being, if I look at developed markets, right, I mean, many of these companies, 
they have been optimized to, the, to a large extent. I mean, their portfolios, their business holdings have been optimized either by smart management or under the threat of private equity guys or uh, activist investors. None of that happens in Asia because uh, most of these Asian companies are family controlled. Um, <clears throat> so there is no private equity coming and basically taking these companies apart and optimizing them. Um, so what's happening now is all these companies that were founded by <clears throat> uh, like a 70 year old, 80 year old, I mean, they are getting too old now and they are handing over the reins to their sons and daughters. And these are typically Western educated <clears throat> uh, sons and daughters who, who come in and then good things happen, right? I mean, capital allocation gets better, better corporate governance gets cleaner. So that's a very interesting uh, phenomenon that we're observing in Asia, which makes it quite attractive to us. Would you say, uh, sorry to interrupt, um, would you say India and China um, are going along sort of fairly parallel, uh, increasing wealth, uh, the consumption, domestic consumption, certainly in China, uh, you say he's driving things rather than exports. Uh, are, are they very similar or very different when you, know, you think of the two biggest regional markets? So India is, uh, I guess, I mean, India's GDP per capita is like one-fifth of China. So it's India is much far back from China. I mean, it has never been, a, uh, it has never been dependent on exports, right? It's primarily been a domestic consumption story all along. China used to be export-led market, but that export-led economy has kind of given way to consumption-led economy over the last, call it like five to 10 years. Uh, so <clears throat> India has always been uh, consumption-based. And within that, I guess the wealth has been increasing. The real income per capita growth in India is slower, has been slower than China. And that's why we see a lot more opportunities there, right? Like India has 1.3 billion people, but I would say most of the consumption is actually happening in the top 200 million or so. And there's like 1.1 billion or so of Indians, they are probably living below poverty line. So as that, as that group starts making more and more money, uh, there will be a lot more opportunities for world-class companies in their own sectors <clears throat> to cater, cater to that demand. Um, and Modi government, they're doing a ton of good stuff, right? There's a lot of good policy movements that are happening that have been happening over the last four or five years, which take time to implement and which have some unintended consequences, uh, which we have seen in the recent past. But we believe in the midterm, India also, I mean, India will accelerate and, and start getting closer to the China, which is which itself is growing fast. Okay, that, that's interesting. Ken, I want to bring you back in uh, uh, for, for a moment. Uh, obviously, we're looking at sort of consumption-led growth and value there. Are there any particular um, consumption trends that you're, that, that you're seeing, just to give me an idea as to uh, where I should be investing my money? Well, I mean, um, I think the consumer spending um, trend is, is an Asia-wide phenomenon, right? And as we just talked about, <clears throat> you know, there are different um, stages of kind of, uh, of, of, of uh, consumers, whether they're coming out of, you know, emerging um, consumers or or um, people upgrading in terms of you know that that up that upgrade phenomena happening uh, mo mostly in China these days. But you know, if, if there is any place where consumer growth is positive in the world today, um, 
and where it's going to grow the fastest. You know, I, I, we still believe it's in Asia and this trend will continue. So, you know, how are we trying to capture this, this trend of increasing spending? Um, a, a, a few ways. So around China, um, you know, clearly the demand for more leisure spending is increasing. Um, the demand for um, experiences and traveling overseas is increasing. So um, we capture that through, for example, our investments in Macau, which as you know, is the only place um, legal within um, China to um, gamble. Um, we capture that through our investments in online travel agencies, um, whether it's uh, Tongcheng Elon or, or, or Trip.com. Um, we capture the tendency for people to um, eat more packaged goods, uh, foods, through our investments in WH Group, which is a, a packaged meats company. Uh, they, they bought Smithfield in, in the US a few years ago. Um, or um, biscuits and energy drinks at, at Dolly Foods. Um, it might be uh, capturing demand for, I would say, um, housing, and upgrade of quality of life through investments in air conditioner companies like Gree or Mydea. Um, or it might be the um, uh, capturing demand for more luxury goods, right? So, you know, stuff like, uh, like Rishwant. Um, so there are many ways to, to capture that. And I'm, I'm just not talking about Chinese demand either. We have an investment uh, in the Philippines um, in Jollibee, which is a fast food restaurant, which they also have in, in Hong Kong. And it really captures the demand for, um, you know, just um, a, a, a branded, um, you know, fast food restaurant kind of experience. And, and mainly in the Philippines, among kind of emerging middle-class um, Filipinos. So there, there, there are many um, trends um, within this increasing consumer spending pie. Uh, and we have, you know, essentially captured it in, in, in a number, number of ways. Um, another thing that, you know, within consumer spending is the growth of um, online versus offline spending. And that's, of course, um, increased, uh, you know, through this whole um, pandemic. Okay. Um you, you mentioned sorry Manish, go on, carry on. Uh no, so I mean and that online spending wise, I mean, we have exposure to companies like Alibaba, the biggest e-commerce platform in China. So we invest that invest in that through SoftBank, which is a much cheaper way of owning Alibaba. And then we have investment in Tencent, but we own that via Process, which is listed in Netherlands. And that's a very cheap way of owning Tencent. So that, that online spending pie is being captured by those kind of investments. And lastly, I guess in India, I mean, housing ownership is extremely low and that's, that's bound to increase. And uh, we are capturing that via investment in companies like HDFC, which is the biggest mortgage lender in India. Right. Well, e even though I've been writing these names down, I've got to remind everybody that, that this is not investment advice and uh, we are not giving investment <laughs> advice during, uh, during this uh, short episode. Um, but 
you know, you mentioned great company names and you know, some people might be less familiar with them. Should I be worried about ESG issues, corporate governments, uh, ownership, for example? Are these issues which uh, I should be highlighted for investing in this part of the world more than other parts? Yeah, no, I think it's, um, it's super important to think about governance in particular, right? I mean, um, you know, a Asia, as we, as we talked about before, um, a lot of Asian companies are, are actually owned by state-owned enterprises. And then a lot of Asian companies are owned by owner managers. And, um, you know, state-owned enterprises have their own issues in terms of kind of alignment of um, of I guess management with shareholders. Typically, these managers of state-owned enterprises really don't own many shares, and in many cases are turned into instruments of public policy. So we we definitely uh, um, keep that um, in mind when we think about you know do we have the right kind of alignment uh, of managers with shareholders like us, right? Um, on the other hand, you know, we see a lot of great companies that are, that are led by significant owner managers. And, you know, I would say that in a lot of these cases, we have a lot of alignment, uh, with these managers because they are thinking like owners. Um, and that, um, is, can be a, a an advantage because of the governance um, you know, aspects of, uh, of Asian companies are you know, vary um, in, from location to location. Okay, um, Ken or, or Manish, I, I don't mind. Um, you, we started off the conversation and we're talking about a, a fairly sharp recovery maybe, certainly for China. And you also mentioned how obviously different markets are at different stages of their recovery and how they've reacted to the COVID. Um, do you think it's going to take longer than most people think? Um, because, you know, so the borders are still closed. You can't really still fly around the region. Export story from China sounded positive. But I get this feeling that, I don't know, if, if equity markets have lost touch with, I don't know, the reality sometimes. So overall impression as to when we think we might get back to normal um, and whatever normal might be again. Yeah, so I, I, actually I have been surprised um, on the upside for Chinese companies in particular. You know, we talked in the beginning about how exports have recovered, GDP is back to positive, um, and that was relatively quickly. And at least in our portfolio, um, we've had a number of companies in China that have reported and, you know, they have actually, you know, one company that we own called China Lessa, their sales and profits and margins are higher year over year in the first half than, than they were last year, which, you know, frankly is pretty surprising. So um, I've been surprised on the upside, particularly among some of the Chinese companies we own um, on the speed of the recovery. Um, but if you're talking about in general in Asia, I think um, I, I, I think that um, the, the countries that don't have the pandemic under control and are actually going through the 
the the peak of the of the crisis now. Clearly, I, I you know we don't think that um, the companies in those countries are going to recover, you know, at the end by the end of the year. And maybe that's what we thought at the beginning of this year, but that's definitely what, not what we're thinking today. Yeah, the, the, one of the things that strikes me is, um, you know, you can take anywhere, you can take Hong Kong, where, where I am at the moment, is that we're in our third wave now. And uh, who knows where there's going to be a fourth, who knows where there's going to be a fifth, etc. Um, so, you know, sort of, it, it just strikes me that it'll be a lot longer um, before we really see, I don't know, the end of it, if we can say that. And uh, maybe it's dependent upon a vaccine coming. Manish, what are, what are your thoughts on sort of, how long before we, we, we can say it's behind us? Uh, it's hard to tell. I mean, it'll vary market by market, right? So, I mean, if we talk Macau, uh, that, that's our biggest exposure in the fund. And we, we think the recovery there would be much faster. I mean, that Macau has had zero cases for over three months now. Um, um, that's the only place Chinese can go to gamble. Uh, and Beijing has already kind of come out and declare like which dates will they start issuing those visas to Macau again. So uh, so that part of the world will recover much faster in our view. Um, and Golden Week, which is coming in October, that'll be a pretty good sign as to know how fast the recovery could be. Um, so in, in Macau's case, we would think, I mean, we could be reaching back to normal levels maybe sometime mid to late next year. But, uh, but are you not concerned that the actual releasing of it and sort of the issuance of visas again, people crowd in, and then that just sets us back another three, six, nine months at all. Does that come into your thinking? No, definitely. I mean, that's the biggest risk because, I mean, once they open and then if they start having community spread, definitely, I mean, those that visa uh, process will stop. Uh, I mean, we, we like the kind of checks and balances that have been put in place. So, I mean, everyone has to show this negative COVID test before they can get the visa. Every time you enter any casino, you got to show that negative certificate. So there are lots of checks and balances in place, but that's the biggest risk, you're right. I mean, we are seeing that in Hong Kong, we are seeing that in Korea. Uh, so the second, third, fourth wave, uh, th that's something you got to live with. But uh, I guess, we us being long-term investors and we look out the next three to five years so it might take three months six months the recovery might get pushed out by six months but that doesn't really uh, break our investment case uh, especially for companies like the ones we own where we are quite confident in the management and the balance sheet so uh, that's another thing what we look for in any investment is they got to have very strong balance sheet and we got to have the right kind of capital allocator at the helm. So even if the recovery gets pushed out, they actually take advantage of the distress. They do some smart stuff, either via buybacks or going and acquiring companies on the cheap. And that way build the value per share through cycle. Because I mean, I guess some of the best deals are found in the worst times, right? And um, so in effect, basically, we are looking at companies which can consistently compound through the cycle, even if the cycle recovery gets delayed by a few months. I mean, but it's different by different uh, for different companies, right? So OTAs might take much longer. I mean, especially OTAs, uh, online travel agencies, which are more exposed to international travel, that could take 23, 24, 2023 or 2024 to come back. Uh, but domestic travel is coming back extremely fast within China, at least. So again, I mean, it's very much company specific um, and uh, I guess region specific. Okay. Well. Um... 
Uh, I said at the beginning that uh, I'm an accountant who likes fundamentals. So one of the fundamentals is I, I like a nice strong balance sheet, uh, especially in these days. So on that note, we've gone round to where we sort of started. So uh, Ken, Manish, uh, I'll thank you very much for your time today and your insights, especially your insights uh, for our region, uh, the APAC region. Um, I appreciate your time. So thank you again. Stay safe. Uh, keep your family safe, safe and uh, we'll speak again maybe in person one day. Thanks ever so much. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.